This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Edinburgh International Book Festival, where we're joined this afternoon by authors Tessa McWatt and Zeba Tolkani. If we can give them a big, big, big Edinburgh welcome. <laughs> so today our event is on Anatomies of Belonging, and it is sponsored by the Eccles Centre at the British Library. Before we begin, I just have a couple of practicalities to run by you guys. The first, of course, being my name. My name is Nadine Aishajasa, and I'm a poet and a writer, and absolutely delighted to be chairing today's event. Um, the, both memoirs are stunning, and I think you're going to have a really compelling event today. As part of that, if I can ask for folks to turn their phones off or put them on silent, that would be wonderful. If you do tweet, if you could tweet discreetly, <laughs> if that's okay. Um, I like to sneak a rhyme in when I can. Um, just so not to disturb the person next to you, um, that would be fantastic. The format of today's discussion is going to be a Q&A with myself, and we're also going to have readings from Tessa and Zeba as well. Um, at the end of the session, we're also going to have plenty of time for audience questions from yourselves too. So without any ado, though, I would like to introduce today's authors. So first up, we have Tessa McWatt, who is going to be discussing her memoir, Shame on Me. Tessa is the author of Shame on Me, a memoir rightly described as an anatomy of race and belonging, as it charts her journey to explore heritage through the body, family and history. She is a professor of creative writing at the University of East Anglia and is the author of novels, stories, essays and libretto, along with There's No Place Like, a novella for young adults. Her second novel, Dragon's Cry, was shortlisted for the City of Toronto Book Awards and the Governor General Awards of Canada. Her other novels include Out of My Skin, This Body, Vital Signs, which was nominated for the 2012 OCM Bocas Prize for Caribbean Literature, and Higher Ed. And she's the co-editor of Luminous Inc., Writers on Writing in Canada. And I feel I should say as well, Shame on Me is literally hot off the press. Mm -hmm. So today you're going to be one of the first audiences, I believe, who'll have a chance to buy a copy, is that correct? Yes. Yes. So literally hot off the press, and what a privilege to have you here Thank to you. be able to do that. We're also joined by Zeba Tulkani, author of My Past is a Foreign Country. It's a stunning memoir exploring her journey to claiming her voice. Zeba has written for the Saudi Gazette, the Manipal Journal, Gal Dem, Wasafiri, and the Nasty Women Anthology by our very own award-winning Scottish publisher, 404 Inc. She works in publishing and is a passionate advocate for BAME voices in the publishing industry. Zeba was born in Circe, <coughs> South India, in 1991, and she currently lives in London. My past is a foreign country has drawn great praise, including from the Women's Prize shortlisted author Mina Kandasamy, who says it was brilliant and brutally honest. This memoir ropes you in with every page. The intimacy that Zeba evokes will remind you of your own sister opening her heart to you. Thank you, Tessa Thank you. and Zeba. 
So before we go into a reading, I just wondered if we could open up today's discussion in response to the theme of both this event and of Edinburgh Book Festival. So this year, our theme is We Need New Stories, and this event is part of the Telling Her Story strand. And I was wondering if to help us get a sense of your work, you could share with us your responses to this theme of We Need New Stories and Telling Her Story. Shall I start? Sure. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you everybody um, for coming. It's really a pleasure to be here, uh, particularly because um, my great-great-grandfather was born in East Lothian, and although, the, although his sort of uh, part of the story in my book is um, interesting and yet problematic, it's really interesting that this book is, is um, being launched here. So thank you. And um, in terms of her story, uh, the, the book charts in, in the Caribbean families, um, because there's so much rupture and disruption in terms of um, uh, slavery and indentured labor, it's very difficult to create a family tree because those kinds of things are um, a lot of fol folklore, a lot of storytelling, a lot of um, uh, conjecture. And so one of the things my book does, or one of the things I do in the book, is to imagine the, my ancestors, imagine that Indian ancestor, that Chinese ancestor, that um, African ancestor, etc., that I don't actually have in stories about. So, it's part, so for me, it's, a, it's, it's kind of bringing those stories into my imagination and therefore possibly into a new sphere of acceptance in a structure that hasn't, has silenced them, has made them silence or has made them disappear really which is um, something that happened happens in a colonial space so I have written about growing up in Saudi Arabia and my identity as a Muslim uh, Indian woman in different parts of the world uh, starting in Saudi Arabia and then India Germany and the UK and I found it really interesting that I've been reading from when I was about seven years old and I'm 28 now and I've never ever found a book that relates to my experiences of being a Muslim woman or even being an Indian woman in books that are not published in India or published in the English language. So I think for me, the opportunity to be able to tell my story feels so amazing. And also a part of me wonders why this opportunity has come now and not for the women before me as well, because that's something that's really important to me. There's so many stories that are worth telling, but only a few of them get told. I was also very aware of how the stories that were picked for the Western audience about Muslim women were never in their own voice and they tended to be misery memoirs. So there was only a certain kind of story that was being accepted for publication and for public consumption. So that was also something that I felt that by telling my story and by talking about my truth without um, going into stereotypes or without trying to package my story in a way that everyone is more comfortable with. So I talk a lot about being a feminist Muslim and that is a concept that's quite new to a lot of people. So I feel like the theme goes with speaking our stories and speaking them proudly and not thinking so much about representation and like not following the representation that we have already had, which has not been too good, mm -hmm. and creating our own definition of what it means to be who we are. Mm. It's definitely like such a strong theme that comes across both, is this resistance both to silencing and what has been silenced, but also this resistance to be defined by others mm -hmm. and to actually a journey towards defining the mm -hmm. self, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if to give us all a taste of that, maybe Tessa, you'd like to start sure. us with a wee reading from Shame on Me. Sure. Um, the memoirs 
uh, structured, it is, as um, Nadine said, a kind of anatomy. It's structured as a um, science experiment. It has hypothesis, analysis, findings, and um, partly it's because there's a place where um, hypothesis is really important to the, to the experiment. So, I, so I'm going to read from the first section, which is hypothesis, where I... Well, you'll see what I do anyway. <laughs> a young Chinese woman, so young, nearly still a girl, runs through a field of sugarcane. Her cotton shift is torn, her hair wild, there is fear on her face. My grandmother. She's escaping something terrible. Her legs are scraped by sharp stalks. Blood is dripping from her knee. I imagine her eyes are streaming with tears. She is running because in her countryside village in Demerara, British Guyana, she has just been raped by her uncle. I imagine my Indian ancestor as a strong woman, perhaps originally from Ud, modern Uttar Pradesh, who could squat easily, hunched over green, sword-like leaves sprouting from emerging stalks. She is exhausted, pulling weeds out of the unfamiliar soil in British Guyana. Thin, fragile from the 112-day journey by ship, she is lucky to have survived on a daily ration of beef or pork, suet, a biscuit, a few raisins. My Arawak ancestor is in a dugout corial on the Bora Bora River that runs through the Iwakrama forest. She paddles past a giant otter sunning itself on a tree stump. My Portuguese ancestor, perhaps from Madeira, arrives among the first free immigrants to the colony in 1835. In her small Hessian sack, she has hidden 20 delicate squares of lace that she stitched while watching her father haul his fishing nets from the sea. There is a rumor about my French ancestor, but she will never confirm for anyone on the colony that her father had a chalice and a silver, silver ring with a hexagon pattern, the Star of David, hidden in his suitcase when he arrived from France. My African great-great-grandmother is lost among trees that don't know her name, don't speak her language, trees that have erased her. She can't find the path that will take her to the clearing. She is getting weak. I reach out to take her by the hand. My Scottish great-great-great-grandmother takes her last breath in East Lothian, and the book she has been reading falls across her chest. She never knows about the brown women with their hands in the soil. I think one of the things that I loved so much in both your books is this sense of, I said, I reached out to take her hand, but the hand being you as the author's reaching out to the women in your lives and your relationships with them. See, but often with your mother, I felt when I was reading my past to the foreign country, like it was a love letter to her. You were reaching out to her in that way. And Tessa, both with the women in your ancestry who you talk about, but also your grandmother and your mother, there's such a sense of that connection and exploring the lives of these women as you explore your own. I wonder if we could talk a wee bit about that and the, and the women in your family. Yeah, I think that's really, it was interesting when I first started Ziba's um, book, how the mother was a very, yes. mine is to my mother, for my mother, mm -hmm. and yours is as well. And I think yeah. that's a really important connection to that idea of her story and the idea of recapturing something that in the patriarchy is 
lost. Yeah, yeah, I definitely felt that. So my mum has not read the book and she's not reading the book, even oh. though it's dedicated to her. Yeah. And everything I feel like I do in life is like, oh, look, mama, I did this for you. <laughs> so there's definitely that. And you can see that in the book, we have not always had the easiest of relationships. Um, and I think that comes through where we go together in the journey. So it's my mm -hmm. story and it's very difficult to separate my story from my mother's because we are just so intertwined. And I think I'm, I'm her first child and she was 23 when I was born. So I feel like we grew up together. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely uh, a lot of that. And there's also this idea of writing about other people, writing about your mom and writing about other people in, our, uh, in my family, which feels like pressure. I don't know if you felt that. It feels like a big responsibility. And it's terrifying. Yeah, and I can't yeah. imagine it's very nice for other people to read how they are being seen mm. by someone else in their family. Yeah. So I can, I can imagine. The issue with um, the fact that this is dedicated to my mother and it's, it's framed by um, talking to my mother on the phone because my mother is in the early stages of dementia. And so for me, it was absolutely crucial that I capture those stories before mm. she loses them because if she loses them, I, there's a part of me that goes as well. So there's a kind of urgency about that connection between um, her and, and she has read it, but she doesn't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's so much actually of who we are um, and, and the legacies of our family is passed down through storytelling as well. Yeah. And yeah. Something very powerful that, as writers, you're continuing that legacy, right? Mm -hmm. so yeah, definitely. I, uh, I feel, yeah, I definitely feel that. And I think um, it feels healing that mm -hmm. I feel like I've put something to rest and all the anger that I've had towards my mother, I've realized now through the writing of the book that that anger was misplaced. It, it was not towards my mother, it was towards the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Is it okay if I read yes, a little bit? Yes, please do. Is there anybody in your family who has read the book? My dad has yeah. read it and loved it. Actually, everyone except for my mom. Oh, <laughs> but I feel uh, I don't want to force her to read the book because it's so much of her life yeah. in it. And she was very gracious and very generous, and she gave me permission to write about this, and she didn't want me to double-check anything with her before it was published. So I really appreciate that. But also, it's not fair that there was some... That time was so traumatic for her, and mm. I feel like it's not fair to force her to go through that for the sake of my art or for the sake of mm. my healing. Her journey towards healing is separate to mine, mm. and I think that's very important to remember. Um, I do wish you'd read it, though. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to read from very early on in the book. Um, so my mom and I have always had a difficult relationship, and one of the reasons was that I was a very fussy eater, um, and this is from the time when I was four years old. When I was around four years old, one of Papa's colleague's wife told Mama that I should be scared into eating. Apparently, her own daughter used to be a fussy eater, but not anymore. At this point, Mama was desperate for any help she could get. The woman told Mama to switch on the gas stove and heat a stainless steel spoon on the fire. The key was to make sure that I was watching. Mama followed the instructions. She sat me down on a chair by the kitchen door, she switched on the stove. She picked up a spoon and held it to the flames. Look, Ziba, she said, this is a hot spoon, and if you do not eat everything on your plate, I will burn your skin and it will hurt. I'm not sure if she actually said any of these words out loud, but the threat was effectively communicated to me. Now, there are two sides to this story, and I cannot always tell which fragments are mine and which belong to Mama's memory. I do not remember the flames or the spoon, I do not remember her walking towards me with this heated spoon. 
However, I do remember a layer of black soot on the spoon. I remember both my wrists locked in Mama's hand, and I remember my need to get away from her. Then, I remember a layer of spoon-shaped skin blackening and tearing away from my thigh. I do not remember if I finished everything on my plate that day. Whenever we revisit the story, Mama is always sorry that it happened. She insists that she never intended to hurt me, that the trick was to scare me, that the fear was that fear was all she was trying to elicit. I remember wiggling. I remember causing Mama to lose her balance. I remember us both crying. What I had forgotten, though, was how I waited all day for Papa to return from work and followed him to his bedroom, where he was changing out of his office clothes. While he rummaged in the cupboard, I perched up on the edge of the bed, lifted my oversized T-shirt, and said, "Look what Mama did to me today." Mama was not around, so I know this was not her memory that I have made mine. I know that I was tattling because when Papa asked me if I was in pain, I distinctly remember not feeling any pain in the moment, but deciding to lie about it anyway. I remember making this choice. I told him I was in a lot of pain and pulled at the dead skin to show him the full damage. Though I have discussed the events of that day with Mama, we have never discussed the consequences of my tattling on her. In fact, I was reminded of my act only recently when Mama shared an anecdote about her friend who lived in fear of her mother-in-law, the one who treated her like a servant. One day, after hours of cooking and cleaning, and with her mother-in-law away on a family engagement, Mama's friend decided to watch TV. This was not something she would dare to do in the presence of her in-laws. Just as she settled on the couch, her four-year-old son walked in. He saw that his mother was do- he saw what his mother was doing, and he recognized immediately that what she that she was doing something she shouldn't be. Wait till I tell Dadi. You will be in so much trouble. He said, while his mother scrambled to switch off the TV. Immediately, the memory of my tattling on Mama came back to me. I was struck by how children discern power dynamics. Up until then, I believed that my fraught relationship with Mama was because of how she policed me. But I think it has something to do with both of us policing each other. That is the beauty of the patriarchy, I suppose. The ones being policed are the ones policing. Thank you. Thank you so much. So something that really stood out for me in your reading, Nazib, as well, is this moment of I'm not sure if these are fragments of my memory or of my mother's. And both of you, in writing a memoir, I wonder if you could share a little bit about what this process of navigating memory and moving through memories in the unique ways that you do in the books was like. I was. A liar as a child, I lied a lot, and I made up lots of stories. And as a child, I believed that these things happened to me. And my mum and my dad would be like, "That that didn't happen. You've never been to that place, or you've not been to that city, or you've not travelled to that country." And I was like, "No, I've been there." So I think writing the memoir, I was very aware of all these memories that I believed in when I was a child, which were not true. So I was very aware that I couldn't rely on my memories. But I I knew. I think the only thing that I could not I could rely on was the feeling. 
I felt very strongly about something that had happened, and I knew that that was not a lie. Whereas memories, I feel it's very difficult to be 100% sure of that's what happened, that's exactly how it happened, or those were the intentions of the other people that I'm talking about. So I was very careful in the book to only talk about how I felt and to not place intentions on other people's actions. And I've only taken the liberty with Mama because I feel like I really know her and we know each other and we have been so connected. And I think when it's your mum, it's your formative year. She didn't work when I was growing up. And a lot of my life was through her eyes mm -hmm. and I was so in tune to her reactions and her actions. So I felt like I could take that liberty with her, but not with anyone else. And it's so difficult to decide what's true and what's not. Mm -hmm. But I think just staying true to my feelings and fact-checking with my father <laughs> really helped. Yeah, It's a really um, interesting and problematic question about memoirs, I mm -hmm. think, about what, what they represent and whether they, they, that they are memory at mm -hmm. all. You know, there's that word history or his story, her story, you mm -hmm. know, it's, and, and one of the themes of the book is that everything is a story, this is a sto that race is a story that's told by people in power. Um, you know, we, I make a, I'm having a story right here that I'm telling that's slightly different from Ziba's, that you're, it's slightly different from all of yours, so our collective memory in this moment is, is going to be slightly different. And so it's, the, it's whether or not anything is um, true is, I think, what you're saying in terms of st staying true to the feeling, to the emotion, to that thing, that, that kernel that you're trying to get at. And I, but I think that as soon as you write something down, it becomes something else other than a memory. You know, mm -hmm. it's part of a story and therefore it, then it gets, I don't, I don't think that we can um, claim that it's true mm. necessarily. Mm. And then it's sort of given to the readers as well, you know, once yeah. it's published, it's, it's out there and it's almost bigger than us in, yeah. in some ways as well. And what has, has that felt like? I mean, I'm conscious CB, your book came out in June and Tessa, yours is, is literally hot off the press. What does that process feel like? It feels like it was like last year, you know, <laughs> things have changed since then, you know, yeah, it's like yeah. there, there are new stories that have taken place after the setting it down on, mm. uh, from, on those stories. So. Yeah. I've, it's been really overwhelming to hear stories from other women from my background saying that this is the first time in their mm -hmm. lives and then their 40s, 30s, 60s, and they've never read their lives being represented in that way in a story that is joyful, even though there are things that have happened that are not happy necessarily, but it's an empowering book. It's a story of an empowered woman rather than a woman who um, doesn't have agency. Mm -hmm. So I think that's been really interesting for me to hear all these stories of other women who have been through similar experiences to mine and they're talking about how amazing it feels to have that in a book, in a form of a book, to be represented like that. And I never knew... I, I wanted that, but I didn't realize how it would feel. Mm -hmm. to c now I, I feel like I carry all their stories, and it doesn't feel a burden. I thought being the one representing would feel like a burden, but the more I hear similar stories, the lighter I feel and the more connected I feel mm -hmm. with this community of women that I would have never had if I hadn't written the book. And it Sorry. <laughs> um, I think the issue with memory as well is that it's so cultural and that mm -hmm. it's so, you know, um, uh, it's governed by power as well. Yeah. You know, whose memories do we get to read about? Whose, you know, um, you know whose, uh, or, or that, you know, if I ask you what happened to you in 1985, July 26th, 
you might have no idea, but if I had said the same year, uh, December 25th, you know, it, you, you might remember because it's, it's triggered by certain things that we all agree on. And I think that also has power attached to it. And, um, you know, in, in my discussion in terms of, of race, you know, race is a story told by people in power mm -hmm. that uh, perpetuate that story. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's a tricky concept, whether mem what memory is. Yeah. But there's also, and again, sort of, I think, as I, as I was touching on earlier, that sense of these stories that are told to us and how do we push back through to self-definition and to actually say, this is who I am and, mm. and this is me defining myself and myself. And you both do that in very specific and unique ways in the book. Um, I don't know if you would like to say a wee bit more about that and about your journeys to self-definition in the book. I feel, um, so I write a lot about my hair loss. I'm currently wearing hair extensions and I started losing my hair when I was around the age of 12. And in, within the patriarchal community that I come from, um, Indian immigrant family, uh, Muslim community, that was quite a big thing because there's the arranged marriage system still works and the idea of getting married seems to be the only way to fulfill a woman's destiny. So that was a lot to handle. And because of all these things around not conforming to beauty, um, I was, exp I, no, I think my parents were trying their best, so I don't blame them for this, but it was very difficult because I was expected to hide the fact that my, I was losing my hair and I was not allowed to share it, so I never had the language to discuss something that was so important and so integral to what was happening, and it was also around the time that my friends were starting to discover how beautiful they were, and I was realizing that I don't fit mm -hmm. in that uh, uh, situation, and I felt... Um, writing the book gave me the language, it gave me a chance mm -hmm. to go back and give the younger version of me the language that she needed at that age mm -hmm. where I felt like I, I would, I, I always refer to my hair loss as my hair problem and when I was going through my journals I was like what does hair problem mean? Like it doesn't, it doesn't explain anything and how are other people supposed to respond to me if I don't know what I'm going through? So I think it was very freeing in that way to look at language and then define myself and then also to define, not define myself by my hair loss because I had a lot of extended family and they're in the book as well who would always try to make me feel bad about not having thick hair. Um, and I feel like I was always being defined as the person who doesn't have hair, as a person who's not conventionally beautiful, as a girl who will probably not find a husband or a good enough husband. So there was a lot of that going on. So the act of writing the book and leading towards writing the book where I felt comfortable to share so much of my life was realizing that no one can define me, only I can define me, and I choose not to be defined by my hair, and I don't have to cover my head just because I don't have hair, and I can look pretty in hair extensions, and I can talk about it, and there's no shame that's mm -hmm. mine to carry. So I feel like that was a very important thing for mm -hmm. me. Um, yeah, finding my individual identity is kind of the key to, well, one of the keys of the book, in that um, af after the section that I just read, there, there's... Um, it starts with a, an anecdote of me being in, at eight years old in grade three in, in Toronto and, and a suburb of Toronto. And um, we're in a class and we're, we're reading a book together. And um, I think I wasn't chosen to read, so I kind of, you know, daydreaming at the back of the class. <laughs> and um, we come, the, the teacher, the, the class stops. And I think, uh oh, what have I missed? <laughs> um, and the teacher says, does anybody know what that means? And so there's a word that um, came up that, that she was asking what, what it meant. 
And um, the word was, um, does anybody know what Negro means? And, you know, I'm sort of looking around thinking, yeah, good question, mm -hmm. you know, what is that? Um, it was a very, you know, suburban Toronto white uh, classroom. And um, Kenneth Percy sitting in front of me turns around and says, yeah, Tessa. And the teacher says, oh, no, 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 as if it's, uh, it's a terrible thing. So, oh, no, 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 not Tessa. Tessa's something else. And, and, I, and I'm like, really? <laughs> okay. Um, and then she says, you know, what are you, Tessa? And I was eight, and nobody had told me how to answer that question, the what are you. I knew where I was from. I knew, you know, what black people were. I knew, you know, all of those things. But to answer what are you, I had no idea. So she, and she tried to help me. She said, you know, you know people are certain things, like... Brazilian, and she's like coaxing out the answer, Mexican, Filipino, and she's trying to coax the answer, and I just was sort of deer in the headlights, didn't know what to do, and, and, and I just put my head down on the desk and didn't look up again until everybody had gone. So I think that the book is about answering that question, what are you, and making those, the answers to that question um, problematic and a fallacy, you know, that that's not what I am. And so the journey towards self in this, in this book is, it goes from a what are you to a who are you um, uh, position at the end that, is, that goes through uh, the parts of the body, the book's structured around um, bodies, it's got, you know, hair, eyes, ass, skin, um, lips, I can't remember the rest, bones, and, and it sort of breaks, and it's an anatomy, it breaks mm -hmm. those down to the, because those are the what that, cre that, are, that make up race, but if you break them down, they're absolutely meaningless in terms of, of race. So um, that journey is mm -hmm. the, to the self is, is one that kind of de is deconstructed by the mm -hmm. what. Mm -hmm. And what I, one of the things I loved um, in your book is in answer to the, the who are you or where you're from, you were like, I'm a writer. Yeah. Because um, it seems in both your books this the way in which reading and the writing of others and literature was such a huge part of your journeys, I actually found fascinating. Mm. Um, if you could share a wee bit yeah. about that as well. So I grew up in Saudi Arabia and there was a very limited number of books that I could get hold of and there was a lot of censorship and it was before internet became popular or was in every household. So I was very dependent on this one bookshop uh, that would have books and then my librarian was not, would not let us read, which I never understood. Like, and as an adult, it seems even more absurd. But as a child, I just accepted that she didn't like us touching the books, so we didn't touch the books. <laughs> I have no idea wh why that was. So I was very dependent on stories, and they came from books, and for me, they also came from my father, uh, because he traveled a lot when I was growing up, so he was gone for long stretches of time. And I feel like my life in Saudi Arabia was just so protected. Uh, I was not allowed to leave the house without my father, and the only time I went out of the house without my father was uh, to school, and the school bus picked me up right outside the house. And there was not as many choices as a child, so books was all I had. And I, f I feel like a lot of my friends who were growing up with me and who were not readers just simply did not have the imagination to think that there was a world outside of Jeddah, outside of Saudi Arabia, there was, that there was a place where women could leave the house on their own, go to a bookshop, go to a cafe, just be normal uh, without needing the male guardian's permission to travel, to have a job, to have a medical procedure done on them. So I feel like books 
gave me that. Books gave me a chance to look at all the other ways that you can be human and you can be a woman in different parts of the world. And I decided, oh, I want some of that and that and that. And I think that's how I managed to find the courage to get out and live on my own. And I left home when I was 17. I moved back to India, which was familiar, but not familiar. I was bo I'm born to Indian parents and I speak the language, but I'd never lived there. But I felt like a lot of my friends did not have the courage. They could not imagine living away from their parents even when they struggled with the life that they had. Mm. So I feel like books gave me a chance to go out and explore for myself mm. and write my own book because of how much um, freeing, how freeing it felt mm. to be able to read them. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yes, absolutely agree. Um, similarly, um, that question, what are you, when it can, couldn't be answered in sort of um, concrete, ethnic, physical, whatever, you know, words, um, I think that's the, my, my search was about to answer that question, and not directly, but certainly it was in a class where I didn't know the words, so I thought, ah, I better, be, I better know more <laughs> words, and better be able to, to answer that, so it be reading became something that um, was a way of, uh, kind of a way of seeing myself, what that, you know, what I really was on a deep level through um, the literature that I loved. And, but it also changed over time, you know, when I, when I was 16, I, I, was, um, I was an existentialist, you know, I, I was, you know, I absolutely loved um, the existentialist French writers. And, but then I realized that you know, only white males could be existentialists because you can't live outside of the body the way they did as a woman, as a woman of color. So, um, I, you know, I, I, my, my kind of growth into um, identifying as a woman of color also went through my reading. Mm -hmm. And so th that was a really important, mm -hmm. um, empowering part of my, um, my growth as a writer, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, as you said, when people ask me what race I am, I say writer. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And it was to be so immediately in, in opening your books and for me as a woman of colour finding that resonance knowing that I had been that girl sat in that classroom too literally asked not where are you from but what, what are you are yeah. you and the, the dehumanisation I think that you encounter and have to navigate from childhood yeah. right um, yeah. within this world and it's I think partly one of the reasons that I value books like this so much because not only are they personal but they're also so inherently political and they're telling truths that need to be heard and they're saying things that need to be said do they do they feel that way to you too deeply personal and deeply political yeah I think just being able to tell my story and not and being proud of who I am and not letting anyone mm. else define me, especially in an era in, in this country where I'm existing alongside Boris Johnson mm. feels like a political act just to be sitting here and breathing and talking and saying, you know, mm. I've written a book about my experience. So I think that, that I think that's political, even if mm. I don't say anything to just be has become a political experience for me as an Indian Muslim woman in the UK. I feel like I can't escape it in any way. And um, I feel quite privileged to be able to do that. And I understand that in a lot of countries, that's not something mm -hmm. you're legally allowed to do or your rights are protected. So yeah, I think it's both. Absolutely political. Um, you know, I think I've been writing this book my whole life since I was eight years old in, in that classroom. But you know, in 2016, when um, you know what happened in many places. Um, you know, it just and and the world feels more divided, more and more and more and more divided, and it's along many lines. You know, gender lines, racial lines, um, socioeconomic lines. It just, 
I just felt that my whole existence was now calling out to me to mm -hmm. say, I need to write this book that kind of, it, I don't know what it does, you tell me what it does, but I, but I think what I'm, what I'm trying to do is to, um, you know, the, the polarity of black and white isn't an experience that I can embrace, I don't have that experience, so, so I'm trying to undermine the, the, the concept and to try to um, have people think about that question, who are you, rather than what are you, and one of the central, you know, those women that I read in, about in the first, um, when I, the bit that I read, um, they're all products of um, slavery, and uh, uh, sorry, products of colonialism, and uh, the sugar plantation, so they all all would have been found on the sugar plantation and the book kind of goes through the anatomy but also um, the idea that those are all women on a hierarchy you know with the white people at the top with this the enslaved people at the bottom is a metaphor at the center of the book that I think could be easily is easily transferred to what we're experiencing mm -hmm. today and I'm wondering about as well and this is something Ziva that you touch on in your memoir and that I think I've experienced as well in my writing and where in our writing we're diving in, we're talking about racism, we're challenging racism, we're sitting with that childhood trauma of what are you, what are you, what are you, what are you? And how do you take care of yourself within that? What role does self-care and self-love play within that as a, you know, as Audre Lorde said, self-care is, is not a self-indulgence, it's an act of political warfare. What role does self-care play within that for you as writers as well? Um, I've written about this and I feel like it's so important to take care of yourself in a space that can sometimes feel combative mm -hmm. and you, you're being stripped of your identity, you're being stripped of your humanness and you have to tell, you have to keep telling other people that you deserve to occupy the space and I think sometimes when you're constantly being told the same thing that you don't deserve the mm -hmm. space, mm -hmm. it's very easy to forget, it's very easy to belie start believing the same message. So I find, um, as a rule, I don't engage with trolls online. I feel like I'm very open um, and I open myself up and I'm very vulnerable to people who want to know more about where I come from and my experiences. And I feel I am extremely generous with the ignorance <laughs> as well. <laughs> but when it comes to trolling, when it comes to people who just do not want me to be, um, I feel like I can just block them and they're not my problem. I think when I was younger, I felt this desperate need to be understood, and I felt like if they understood me, then they would stop. If they understood me, then they would not treat me like this and treat other mm -hmm. people like this. But I think I've understood now, as part of uh, radical self-care, that they are not my problem, and mm -hmm. if they are choosing to be that way, it's, it's up to them, and I need to mm -hmm. put myself first and my mm -hmm. emotional stability and my humanness first. Mm -hmm. That's really good. I, I really I envy you, and I and I really admire that, because um, I don't think I do the same thing. I think the book is is self care, and in, in, in mm. other words, I needed to. I had to write it. I had no I had no um, choice but to write it. But I think that um, for me, what's what's harder than I don't experience overt racism very much. Re recently, I have for the first time in my life since 2016, but um, but that I, it's more of those sort of small micro moments mm -hmm. with friends or with, you know, strangers that don't, who mean well, you know, that are, mo that are more difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I'm not very good at that mm -hmm. self-care moment, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm working, I'm going to learn from Ziva. Mm -hmm. 
But it, I mean, I always feel like I need to learn from Zebra. Yeah. <laughs> That's always like my take-home message. Thank you. Um, but I think, to be honest, there's so much to be learned from both of your works and both of your ways of approaching it. And in particular, you know, as a poet, like reading your work and the poetry with which you write, Tessa, and the way you write about how, you know, you were talking about divisions earlier and how poetry can, can break those borders, you know. And Zeba, you were talking about the, the response that you've had from other women. Your works are works of connection in some ways as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And a cry for connection. Yes. You know, the, I end up with, you know, start out with talking about existentialists and, and not being able to connect to that, but I end up with poetry as being the hope, hope that because if we can imagine those words on the page, those amazing words, and I use a lot of my favorite poets on the page, surely we can imagine a new way of being in this question of what are you, you know, so surely we can create because it, we're all made of those words. We're made of a lot, all the words we read throughout our whole lives, and I think that gives me hope. You know, mm -hmm. poetry gives me hope. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's literature and just the connection, like you said, it's so important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And on that subtle, charming aside, it's now time for you to connect with our authors on the mm. stage. You see what I did there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if we could have our house lights up, and we'll take some questions from the audience. Um, if you could raise your hand high and wait until a member of our staff team comes with the microphone um, and just hold it quite close to your mouth if that's okay when you do. So if we have a hand up for audience questions. Oh, uh, we've got one right at the front of our first one. Thank you. Thank you very much for both your contributions. And I found it very heartening to hear you talk about what are you as a... <laughs> Disabled man in 2019, it's not what are you that I get asked, it's what's wrong with you. And my first response is nothing, but then I have to go away and um, kind of recover, mm -hmm. because you have to then explain to them what the medical diagnosis is that happened at birth. My my question to you both is, what in society can I do in my position to help the conversation? And how do you see that developing in the era of Trump and Boris Johnson when they want to build walls between us instead of dialogue? Thank you so much. I think you've just done it, <laughs> you know, to have to to connect what we're talking about in our experience to your own is hugely moving for me. So thank you very much. And it's true that what are you? It's that it's that instead of instead of talking about the external or the or the um, status or whatever it is about that person, you know, who are you as a person? That's where we really exist. And I think, um, yeah, that. You, if you just keep doing that. <laughs> thank yeah, you. Thank you. I feel like I have nothing else to add to that. Thank you so much for doing what you're already doing. That's really important. Thank you. And for, I feel, championing that need as well to push past, past those borders and, and really naming as well some of the, mm. the people who are actively uh, erecting those borders yes. Yes. Um, yeah. as well. Amazing. Um, I believe, oh, there we go, our next question. So, this question is for Zeba. Uh, how is your relationship uh, with Jeddah, the city that you lived in? That's the city where I come from, actually. Okay. So how that, are, are your parents still there? 
Do you still go back? What do you think of the changes that are happening there? I love Jeddah, and I hope it comes across in the book as well how much I love my hometown. Uh, my parents still live there. I think I was last there a couple of years ago. Um, I used to go back every year or twice a year, but since I got married, I don't travel back um, as much. I'm very proud of that city. I feel like it has seen a lot of change in the time that I was living there and growing up. And now when I go back, it, it's not the city that I grew up in. It makes me feel really good about how far the Saudi activists have come. Mm -hmm. Things are very difficult for them, and I don't want to speak for them. But I feel like they're doing the hardest work as feminists and as human rights activists at, at this point. Um, it's a lot more free. And I feel very hopeful. I feel hopeful that things are going to change for that country and for that city and for the women that I grew up with. And mm. I'm really excited to see what they'll do next. Amazing. Thank you, Zeba. Um, do we have another? Oh, uh, right in the middle, bang in front. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I love both contributions. And I was wondering, how did you go about starting to write these memoirs? Mm. How do you select what to write about? Do you have any particular tricks, like using particular objects or something to trigger mm. your memories? That's a good question. Do you want to go first? Yeah, because you've sure. written more than I have. <laughs> um, how do I go about it? I think, I think for me, actually, the structure of it came into in first. So I decided that it was going to be broken down into chapters around body parts. And so once I did that, I was able to kind of dissect my own body part in relation to race, but also then to, um, find stories that were uh, that applied to that. You know, for example, you know, stories around um, hair or lips. You know, the fact that the the um, lip enhancement industry is massive, but that's not seen as a racialized kind of thing, and yet, you know, it's a racialized part of the body, and, and so th those stories came when I, after I got, I got the structure, so it was, it was kind of easy once I did that. So I decided what I wanted to tell what story that I wanted to tell. So it was very important for me that it's um, a story that stays true to my experience and I don't let anyone change that or manipulate that in any way. And the second good thing I did was get a really brilliant editor. And she's here, <laughs> Francine too. And I feel like uh, working together as a collaborator, I think of the book as a collaborative effort. And I feel like I had a lot of stories. And I think when you write about your life, it's very difficult to see your life in a narrative thread. So I find that I bombarded Francine with my entire life. And she was like, oh, let's pick these. <laughs> and let's talk about this. And let's explore that. So I, I really um, appreciated that kind of input from so early on in the writing process because I feel like when it's your life you're, you're in it and you're still mm -hmm. living it and there's so many things that you have not processed yet so it's very difficult to be able to do that or I at least I found it very difficult mm -hmm. I'm 28 so I feel like I'm really still in the middle of it so yeah a good editor and also just being very clear from the beginning what you want to mm -hmm. tell and not let anyone change that for you because it's like quite an, an interesting question of, you know, you've written these very personal books, and when you hand them over to an editor, like, what, what is that like? 
My editor's here too. <laughs> so we can only say nice things. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. Uh, it, it's 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 fantastic because you get seen. Yeah. You know, and they help you get s seen in the right way. And you know, they challenged. You know, I was very challenged by my editors, which I really really appreciated. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I was challenged. I think to go further than I had thought I was going to go. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That push. agreed. Yeah. yeah. Um, amazing. And if we have a, oh, I've got, you both put your hands up the same, <laughs> there you go. Um. Thank you for your very inspirational discussion. It's really, really fantastic. Um, I work in higher education. And Could we hold the mic a little bit closer? I'm so Hello. sorry. Yeah, you thank you, so sorry. Um, yeah, just thank you for your inspirational talk. Um, I work in higher education and my question is, was there a time during your education that that was there was something like a trigger or something that really set you on the path that you're on now and what is it that do you think is important in not necessarily higher education but at any point in your education that maybe sets people on the journey to be able to do what both of you are doing I teach as well in, in higher education so um, I have sort of two ways of looking at that question because when for me I didn't I didn't study I, d I didn't there wasn't there weren't any creative rights so long ago there weren't any creative writing courses and I um, went to university in um, Canada and so it was more about being in love with literature and I think that's you know what I try to do with with um, my students too. So uh, you know, it, there's no student, there's no no writer that can be a writer without reading absolutely everything, mm -hmm. in the you know in their path, ev everything, not just what they want. So so I think it's the it's the reading and it's that you know voracious appetite that that's important. And I think I had that partly because of, of my uh, like a search and a journey about who mm -hmm. I was. Um, but I think that's what writers do. You know, I think that mm. all writers are, are obsessed with reading first. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I went to an Indian school, so I felt like I was very comfortable within the education system that I was part of, and I didn't feel uh, like I didn't belong. Uh, but I think as uh, someone who works in publishing, I'm very keen on pushing for more diverse books mm -hmm. for children, and I mm -hmm. feel like that's another way to help um, young adults and children, just for them to be able to see themselves and different people within mm. uh, the books from a very early age, I think. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's about hearing just once in your life that yes, you can do it, you know, yes, yes, go ahead. And I think that, that that's crucial to young writers, to young people, for sure, but you know, to, to, not, to not have, to not set up more roadblocks than they already have, you know, to just let, say yes, yes, you can do, you can do it. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, I believe, oh, you've already got your mic, excellent. Um, uh, so I was really interested in something, Ziva, that you said about not forcing your mum to read the book because it, it's her life and a lot of it was deeply traumatic. And it made me think about this quote, and I'm definitely paraphrasing and getting it wrong, but that we write to experience things twice. Mm. And... I yeah, I would just love to hear more of your thoughts about um, the interplay between writing about your story as a woman of colour, as therapy, but also this this burden of of education and educating people. Um, yeah, I just would love to hear both of you talk about that. 
Thank you. So I was I didn't put the burden on myself about educating others. So when I started writing the book, I was very clear that the book is for me and the book is for me to like you said re live those experiences but it was so important to me to be able to go back to these experiences as an adult as someone who was consciously choosing to do that and a person with agency and i think it changed a lot of my childhood uh, um i think my idea of my childhood was very different to what it actually was um in many ways it wasn't that bad <laughs> so i just made it worse than uh it was so I, i feel very grateful that the writing gave me a chance to do that and you said about writing being therapy um and i want to say that therapy is therapy so i got therapy and it was very important to me to be able to do mm-hmm. that whereas when i started writing the book i don't think i was i, was, I didn't realize how painful it was going to be to go through my life and to be able to look at my own actions um the bu- the bit that i read to suddenly realize for the first time that i was i was troubling my mother and i was very aware of the power dynamics and i knew that she was lower down in the pecking order within the patriarchy within the family and i misused that and that's probably the only that's one of the times i remember and there are probably other times that i've done that as well so for me that was very important to be able to be aware of it and also in terms of my mother not reading the book i feel i don't know if it's i don't want to generalize but i feel like within my community there's a lot of denial mm-hmm. uh, because the patriarchy is so traumatic because the women are forced to do things they don't want to do so i can't imagine that i come in to these spaces and i say things like oh i'll do what i want to do and i don't have to do what you think you had to do so i can imagine how that me existing as myself could simply be traumatic for people in my family so i try not to i just i think the change that i'm trying to bring is by changing myself and not thinking too much about how i'm being received because i think mm-hmm. for me what's most important is that younger women in my family are seeing that there's a different way to be um not changing my name after i got married was uh, quite a big deal there were a lot of people who were opposed to that and there was one person in the family who just who just couldn't understand why i haven't changed my name mm-hmm. and i would keep trying to explain to her that it's my feminist choice this is what i want to do i'd like to do this and then one day i just said i don't want to do it that's why i've not changed it so i didn't give her an explanation and that was the last time she asked me and a part of me i was very annoyed with her but then a part of me wonders maybe she wanted to keep her name and maybe she didn't have that choice and the reason why she's asking me is not because she wants me to change my name but because she wants to know how i've managed mm. to keep hold of myself within the patriarchy so i feel like being vulnerable open and generous is helping me with the book and also living so it's less burdensome burdensome mm. as i thought it mm. would be yeah um i agree with siva about the therapy i had did therapy so this isn't therapy <laughs> yet, but actually therapy is a really big part mm. of the book because it's a it's it's looking at you know kind of fragmented self with all those identities mm. and creating that sort of more more grounded more um integrated self that's allowed to then be a political person without having to be burdened by those um many many Mm-hmm. parts of myself but the question that you asked about you know that whole having to be you know the p- people of color are the ones who have to explain to um white people how what it's like and coming up against a kind of fragility that you know well I'm not racist and you know mm-hmm. it's a really it, it's a really difficult thing and it's and it is a, a burden um and I have friends um black 
um, political radical friends who um, will not like that this book is aimed at someone like you know that aimed aimed at a kind of um, healing mm-hmm. um, because that expl- explanation and that constant responsibility for um, white people to uh, know what it's like is that it's been go- going on forever you know since <coughs> abolition and and it's and, and therefore it hasn't changed and therefore you know the responsibility is now yours you know, mm-hmm. rather than, than theirs. And so there, it, is a, it is a really interesting issue. And thanks for the question. Yeah, fantastic question. Thank you. Um, show of hands. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, I'm just conscious of how, uh, of, of two things. I mean, how memoir is such a roomy, baggy monster as a genre. And, you know, and what it's, and, and one of the things that entered into it in the last, what, 40 years is gender. You know, it seems to me um, as um, tilt the microphone oh, right. slightly. Just Gender, so okay. <laughs> um, so, so I'm thinking of you know, portrait of the artist, which is clearly a form of autobiography, stroke, memoir. Or, well, I don't know, and I really wanted to ask you about the degree. You know, I mean, Zebe, you were saying, you know, that you wanted to keep this to things that had happened to you, but it's a very selective process. Of, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story you're telling others, but not necessarily the story you tell yourself. Is, is that right? I mean, I'm, tr- I'm trying... And not the whole story, And not the whole story. A, I mean, this is... Mm-hmm. This is fictive. It, it is a, mm-hmm. It's within the realms of, um, of a narrative, mm-hmm. a literary narrative, even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as opposed to you know, history in any simple sense. Mm-hmm. And I just, and I, you, you, do you both use the first person? Uh, you know, you do? Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. I, I just, okay, so I really wanted to know about the slippage between your lives, as it were, and how you, uh, how you locate your memoirs. Okay. Your, me- your memoir each, I don't mean your memoirs, yes. And, and how that relates to earlier forms of autobiography, which are often male, uh, you know, and whether you draw on those at all. Okay. Um, I, I think I understand what you mean by locate, and I'm not sure, but, but so, so mine um, comes out of, you know, there's, there was a movement in the, you know, Audre Lorde and the movement of the um, Black Women's Collective of telling um, stories that were not told before. And so I s- situate myself along that continuum, I would think. And, and all of the people that, I mean, although my, there are lots of men in my book, um, the, the, the uncovering that I'm doing through, uh, about myself is through the women in my life. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because I think about this a lot. I feel like I got really lucky to be able to write this book so young. And I also think that if I was writing this book in my 30s, it would be a completely different book. Whereas right now, the things that are important to me are the things that have made it into the book, the things that have affected me the most. And I also find that the changes in the last few years, I don't know how long it's been going on, but there's been so many... The space now in memoirs for women's lives to be messy and for it to not have 
a complete thread or for it to end in a way that you want books to end. So I find that very freeing. So just being aware of all the women who have come before me and who have written, um, even as recently as this year, there's a book by T. Kira Madden uh, called Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls. And it's a huge book and there is no chronological order. And I love that that book can exist as a mm. memoir. There's so many fragmented memories mm. in it. So I feel very free to be able to do this. So I'm not, I don't know if that answers your question. I hope that answers mm. your question. But I think as well, what, what you've both done is in some way we've come so beautifully full circle back to where we started and back to the women you know, yeah. back to the, the women who've gone before us and also to the connections between literature and how what we found in them is freedom in some mm, ways yes. and an ability to move towards, towards voice and, and an expression of our own, um, which I feel has been such a key theme of today. Mm. I'm afraid we're, we're right just on the dot um, of having to say goodbye to you all, but before we do, if I could just say a huge thank you, um, firstly to our beautiful, beautiful speakers, Zeba and Tessa, also to you, the lovely audience, to our fantastic tech team, to the Eccles Centre at the British Library who sponsored this event, um, and to everybody for coming. It's been a fantastic, fantastic event. Thank you so thank much. You. We are going to be. We're going to be signing now in the garden bookshop. We're going to be signing beautiful copies of Ziba and Tessa's books. If it's okay, if you let us leave the stage first, that way I can ensure that Ziba and Tessa are sat waiting for you to come and buy millions and millions and millions of copies of their books, as I'm sure you will, um, and get yours signed. Thank you so much for coming today, and we'll be through in the garden bookshop for you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.